Welcome to the Red Chair. Today we have a very special guest, good old friend, Fred this time. <laughs> It's a pleasure to Welcome see you, my man. Welcome to Indico. Welcome Thank to Lisbon. You. So glad to be uh, here. Absolutely. Um, you're one of the you know, great VCs in Europe, for sure, that we admire so much. It's good to have you here in the office. But tell me, who is Fred Desta? How did it all start? Um, well, I mean, if you think about venture per se, so I started that 22 years ago now. And I would say my two passions in life outside of my family and friends are design and architecture and building startups. And so very often when you ask people why are you in the venture game, they'll say, well, it's intellectually interesting and I get to meet a lot of people. I can make money, whatever. They talk about the features. For me, I think it's more like it's really become my craft. And I think of myself as a craft person. It's like, how do you build companies? And so um, that's me on the professional side. I've been doing this for a long time. Love it. Uh, the more it goes, the more I realize I know nothing, which is also very refreshing. That's how I feel when I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then other than that, you know, I grew up in Belgium um, until I was 14, moved to the UK. And I kind of think of myself as a citizen of the world, really. I lived in Boston. I've been in London 22 years. So I'm kind of a Londoner, if you want to place me somewhere. Since but, 2000. But I'm also just a human, you know, and part of the human race. And to a certain extent, I think countries are views of the mind. You know, they're used to uh, control and divide us <laughs> rather than anything else. <laughs> so I very much, uh, yeah, I'm very happy anywhere, really. And but. You started immediately in in, in VC in no, 2000, I've, or how did it go? I have like the worst background to be a venture capitalist. Um, well, not really, but I did a hybrid derivatives at JP Morgan and Goldman. And honestly, when I graduated, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I got a summer job, and my, my boss was the most amazing mentor that I've ever had. And in a way, I'm grateful for it. I'm also not grateful for it because it, <laughs> I was so happy with him that he put me on a trajectory to stay in there for too long. But then in 1999, uh, at Goldman, I started to see how credit derivatives in particular were being used the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So this is nine years before the crisis, but the writing was already on the wall. And at the end of 1999, they actually promoted me and I resigned, which I think was still probably a shock to uh, Tom Montag, who did that at the time. But I was just thinking about, do I really want to commit to this? And I'd always been obsessed with company creation. So I think there's something, if you think about life, life is like an arc between birth and death, and there's a certain mm -hmm. movement in it. And if you think about company building, the, the act of creating is a very human act. And at, at a, quite a deep level, I've always been attracted to that. And then I started in VC thinking I'll go run a company at some point. I love operations, I love products, I love people. But then I found that I was actually pretty decent at it because I, I'm probably a better counselor than an operator. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm probably not a good operator is because I get bored. And I think a year and a half into a company, I'd be looking around going, okay, exactly. Always the same this thing, was right? great, but it's getting repetitive. Yeah. <laughs> what else can I go yeah. do? So I think in life, you got to know what you're good at, right? Yes. Um, VCs so, yeah. quite often like to do different stuff all the time, right? That's why yeah. you're a VC and not a, a and CEO. And you know, I time. can really apply my creativity. So I realized in business, creativity is actually a really valuable skill. And we don't think of business as being creative, but actually it is. So if you think about reframing a go-to-market strategy, reworking a narrative or Absolutely. a positioning, or or you have a complex strategy problem and you're trying to make sense of it and you're using analogs and you're whiteboarding what the solution might look like. Uh, without overstating it, I think there's quite a lot of creativity involved. And if I think about the moments that make me really happy, like where I get the most energy, it's always in the room 
always talking about some complex strategic issue. And right. that's where that's where I get my kicks. Yeah, it's the difference between having a regular business and actually growing exponentially, right? It's creativity, basically how you frame it and what you what you do with it. Exactly. But you were so you were in 1990 in London. I was there as well. Uh, you know, it was the dot com boom, and London was already at the center of Europe at the time in terms of of tech. Is was it then that you got inspired to one day become a VC? No, oh, I jumped into Speed Ventures. Oh. Uh, I divided, I did, actually, so true story, I divided my earnings by 10. <laughs> so but the earnings were good at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, but still, I mean, it was like, <laughs> you know, it was 26, 27 or something, and I took my salary down by 10x, or my earnings down by 10x. But I never looked back because the moment I jumped in, Speed Ventures was a bubble vehicle. You know, had a bunch of companies go public. Let's buy .com, if you remember that. Yeah, very well. And then Speed there. Ventures itself had filed to go public. So we had Bear Stearns underwriting the IPO, and I remember being in Finland with the no, sorry, in Iceland with the whole team, and we're in this remote cabin on a glacier, and everybody's drunk on vodka, going IPO, IPO. <laughs> it's like all fifty of us or something singing IPO, and and then April happened, and actually we were slated to go public April 29th or something. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, thank God we didn't go public; it would have been a disaster. But yes. it was the April whole 2000, thing, right? Yeah, yeah, April 2000. 2000. I, I was just leaving to go to Harvard at the time, right. right? So the whole thing was hilarious. And then after that, it got hard. Um, Very hard. <laughs> and people think the bubble bursting was hard. But actually, then we had September 11th. Yes, yes. Then yes. we had the telcos go bust. So Qualcomm, yes. Qualcomm was March yeah. 2002. And then all the CELACs went bust. So all the yes. telecom CapEx disappeared. Yes. And Enron and Arthur Anderson. And, and Enron, exactly. So... <clears throat> I would say it wasn't until Q303 that shit started to look normal again. So what was interesting about that crossing of the desert is like nothing about it was fun. You were firing people, firing people again, firing people again. It was just a descent into hell. And I think a lot of the tourists left. Mm -hmm. And I really remember these years as fucking struggling to build companies and to survive and to raise yes, money. And just getting capital was impossible at the yeah, time. Yeah, and it, everything was, was kind of painful. But I still loved it. Yeah. I'm like, wow, okay, like this is, this is really my jam, you know? But it set the stage for the nuclear winter of VC in Europe, right? Where everybody got so burned in the dot-com boom that, you know, the LPs would never touch VC again. And they didn't for, for many years. Totally. Well, which is why if you look, Axel London was created in 2000, Benchmark, then Bolderton, same time. And index, it started in 98, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so all these funds did unbelievably well mm -hmm. because they were in market in 0203, right. 04, which are the beautiful vintages, and they just owned it, right? Owned it. And then you build no competition. They were very good. Yeah. They had capital. And they're good. And, you know, so, so it's really interesting to see that the if you look at index and Excel as the two leading brands in Europe, um, you know, that's when, they, that's when they got built. Right? So when did you join Excel? Well, so I was at a. I went to a firm called Atlas Venture, mm -hmm. which at the time was probably a top five European firm. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, um, I there were not that many doors into mainstream VC, so you mm -hmm. kind of no. take the one that you can. So I went into Atlas with my eyes open. It's kind of still like that, no way. <laughs> yeah, this is true. I went into Atlas with my eyes open. It was a slightly bloated organization, too many partners, too much, too many funds in the management. But I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to go in. And there are a couple of people I really love. So Jeff Fagnan and Sonali Duraker, who now runs uh, Excel Europe. And I was like, okay, this isn't perfect, but there's some good stuff about it. 
Then we went to 2008. And in, Here we go again. In summer 08, we had 300 million committed and we were well on our way to close a 500 million fund. The problem is we had Morgan Stanley, Lehman, we had all the banks. And so by the end of September, we went from 300 committed to 130, right? It was like your whole fundraising just go off. And so we took a decision to uh, close by Christmas. It was like, whatever we have by Christmas, we're working with that. So we ended up with 385 million. January 6th, we fired half the partnership, which was interesting. It was a very organic process, actually. There was like a coalition of the willing. Uh, that people just came together and it was kind of obvious who the core group was. And and then we went to town on rebuilding that thing. Um, Now, that became Atlas Venture, which is a biotech fund, and Accomplice, which is a tech fund. Mm -hmm. And both franchises have been really, really successful. Uh, Probably the favorite part of my career because we took the tech tech team down from 12 partners down to three. If you can imagine, I mean, this is radical. And it was Jeff Fagden, myself, and a third guy, and I ended up moving to Boston. So people were like, are you crazy? Like, you have no brand name, you're well-known in Europe, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm kind of excited about it, to be honest. So I landed in Boston, and we just became like the punks of the local scene. We were just super early, super aggressive, you know. We didn't have investment memos, the term sheets were like one page long, you know. We just went in there and just... And the beauty of it, though, is because we were so fast on decision-making, quite disciplined, is we built a fund that last time I checked was like six and a half X. So, and it's hard, by the way. It takes a lot of luck. It takes a lot of luck. It takes a lot of, a lot of discipline. But, you know, we ended up putting a fantastic fund on the map. And so we went from this semi-dead organization to two groups that are both thriving. Uh, an accomplice seeded angel list and, you know, kind of did mm. spearhead and all these super uh, creative initiatives. And that was really awesome. Then we get to 2014. So I'm now 10 years into Atlas Venture, <laughs> this kind of difficult, bloated beginning, the near death experience, the rebuild, success. And I ran into trouble on the personal side. So my couple was failing and I was like, okay, how do I fix this? And the bad idea at the time I was like why don't we go back to Europe so if you imagine you're struggling in your personal life and you're going to change continent Country. school <clears throat> job <laughs> you know and you think that's a good idea right. I don't know what I was thinking but I thought oh maybe it'll be like a new start yeah. uh, that didn't work that's um, like when people have, are struggling and have a kid <laughs> exactly uh, that's a, it's a perfect analog so lesson learned but you know um, I wanted to come back to Europe and Excel was on my back because I had track record, they knew me, we co-invested together, Sonali was there. And so it seemed very logical to join Excel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was at Excel for three years, did okay on the investment side, you know, did Deliveroo, PillPack, which has become Amazon Health. Um, and so I, I kind of produced my numbers. But I didn't really feel at home. So mm-hmm. Excel is an extremely well-run partnership. I think they've, of course. nobody's weak. You know, it's a very strong team, very high quality of talent. Um, but running 500 million funds, I mean, it's one of four GPs at Excel. Uh, you know, it like wasn't my thing. And at but the same time... Because of the size, of the check size? Yeah, or it's the... just bigger. It's Series Bs, <clears throat> it's a big... Series As and Bs, whatever. It's a big machine. Or did you, know? you feel that you couldn't sort of influence enough the companies? I mean, you had a lot of influence, but... It's, it's just scale drives a different game. 
you know, we were industrially covering 14 countries, right? And so everything, the way you build your deal flow, the deal flow is a machine. The sourcing is a machine. The investment committee is a machine because everything it has to be, to be right? industrialized around processes that you can get to the right deals fast enough. And I can do it. It's just I was kind of losing a bit of my passion and creativity. Right. And I think at the same time, there was the, this other tension, which is people who knew me for 20 years have been telling me, you got to do your own thing. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like you got to go, you got to go create. Um, and so, and you know, in a partnership also, because my style was so different, I, I don't think they were necessarily super happy with me. So it was kind of, you know, it just didn't really gel. It didn't fit. Which is fine. I mean, it's like you, you got to let life. You were a misfit. You got to let life follow its course. And, you know, if it's not right, like right. Uh, almost energetically, then, you know, that, that's life sending you a message, okay. right? So started, decided to start something. And then I was at home. So I agreed a one year transition out with Excel. And then I'm at home, I remember in February, and I'm like, yeah, that's good, but I just got divorced. I got these heavy divorce obligations. I lost all my money in Boston, which is another story, uh, on a disastrous real estate project. So I was like, no cash. Uh, and I was like sitting at home going, bum, bum, like, what do I do now? And then Harry Stebbings came by with a deck for a pre-seed fund. He's like, I want to use the podcast. I'd like to raise, I forget what it was, like $8 million So he wanted something. to raise from you. No, he was just wanted feedback on feedback. what he was trying to do. And he was at Atomico at the time. So Harry was 20, had was two years into his podcast. The podcast was starting to get some pretty decent guests in a great network. And he's like, I'm going to raise $8 million or $10 million, whatever it was. I'm like, well, why don't we work together? So we put pen to paper in April, May. And then in May, we decided to get going together to start Stride. And, you know, 50-50 split on the carry. Uh, it was really interesting raising that fund because some people thought I was nuts. They're like, you gave half your economics to, quote-unquote, a kid. And I'm like, yeah, he might be young, but he's really very good. Of and course. just, like, give it time, you'll see. But So some people loved it because they thought, oh, it's great. It's one of the OGs with a young guy. Right. And other people thought it was, like, the worst thing ever or didn't think it was real. Uh, so anyway, so we got on the road. Raising a first-time fund is a bitch. Uh, 700 investors approached, over 1,000 meetings. I mean, it is a work of consistency, and you have to be so unbelievably systematic to find your true believers. So that was a really great learning journey, actually. Because at Excel, you just go around, you shake hands, you get money, right? right. <laughs> it's kind of the so machine is done. It's so easy. Uh, <laughs> there, you have a laptop and a PowerPoint, and like, believe in me and this kid. <laughs> yeah. So we landed in Palo Alto on our first trip and we hadn't even bought computers. So the first thing we did was we went to the, uh, this is part of our little legend, I guess, but we went to the Apple store in Palo Alto, of course. Of course. And then we bought two giant uh, Mac PowerBooks. And then we kind of did our first deck overnight and went into our first meetings. Like, this is literally how it happened. <laughs> and then funny enough, we're down, we're down in University Avenue or something. And we go to the restaurant, Harry couldn't get a drink. So, because he's 20, right? So he tries to use his brother's ID. <laughs> and they're like, well, that's not you. So he ended up with a Diet Coke. And to this day, I give him shit about it. But it was just so much fun to be on the road together. And, you know, we're like, every day, every day, we wouldn't go to bed until we had five intros to LPs. 
Yeah, that was the task. It was like every day. Every and you day, decided to day. fundraise in the US. So we despite the fact that you were launching not I know. We took this as an opportunity to build CRM because we're like, okay, CRM's a long term asset. And so because we have a reason to talk to people, let's go talk to people. So we went to see university endowments and Rockefeller and you know, like people we knew we weren't gonna get money from no. on a first time fund. Because but, you'd be anyway too small, right? Right. But it allowed us to have the conversation. And so today, you know, I have a very robust CRM, of which course. is in part because on Fund One we really put in the miles um, to instead of focusing on just getting the money, it's like let's go talk to the best and then see what they say. University of Texas, you know, people like that. Um, so that was a really interesting process, quite fun. So anyway, so we ended up closing on fifty mil, got going, started investing, and then I did five ten. Which year was this? So this is two thousand eighteen. Eighteen. And then yes. I did five rolling closes. Because I wanted to take pressure off myself to this big second close event. So we just started investing. Mm -hmm. And then every time we had 10 million, we just did a close, did a close, did a close. So we got to 100 by um, May 19, I think, um, which was great. I actually really enjoyed that process because now we were doing everything. And that was pretty cool. Um, and then Harry, unfortunately, <laughs> Harry had different plans compared to mine, because I wanted to keep the funds small, small. and artisan. And, and you know, it's part of your stage of life thing. Like, I don't have right. anything to prove. I just want to do shit that I'm good at and that I find fun. Whereas Harry was like, hey, I want to build something really big. And so we ended up, prior to fund two, we're like basically slightly um, having different objectives. And again, I'm like, look, he's my brother, and we put fund one on the map, but we decided he was going to do 20 VC. And was going to keep on doing my little artisan seed fund, right. and so we parted ways. So you know, building a team in venture that's stable is just tough, and you know you continue to learn. You know it, but you continue to to life reminds you. And the next phase was, I think, for me, just being very, very explicit about values, long term alignment, what the objectives were, and kind of rebuild the team from there. So I had Pietro Invernizzi with me. I had a fantastic CFO, Ross Wade, who was like my backbone. But that was it. That was the three of us. And then Cleo, uh, I, t I spoke to actually before Harry left, so mm -hmm. I knew she was joining. Um, but that, there we were. So we raised fund two. We capped at 100 million. I think we had about 240 million committed, just kept, kept it small, and, and then kept building. And then we were lucky enough, so the CEO of Secret Escapes called me up, and he said, hey, my secret weapon's leaving. She's fantastic. You have to talk to her. So Lina Zakarovskaite, um, uh, she's from Estonia. It takes a while to learn to say her name. But she ran growth at Secret Escape. She's phenomenal. And so she landed out of nowhere. I'm like, great. What a talented, what a talented woman. Please come on board. And, um, and then we hired a couple of uh, associates. Uh, one actually interviewed me for his podcast. His name is Michelangelo. So Michelangelo was interviewing me for his podcast, and I thought the podcast was amazing. And at the end of it, I'm like, hey, what are you doing for the next two years? And he's like, what? And I'm like, what are you doing for the next two years? He's like, well, I don't know. I'm probably going to be a founder or something. So you want to go work with us? Uh, and he's like, sure. And then he goes, what's my job description going to be? <laughs> I'm like, chaos. Can you be chaos? He was like, what do you mean? He was like, well, can you bring all the stuff we don't see? Can you come and challenge how we think? Can you just come and be chaos? He's like, that's my job description? I'm like, yeah. So cool. he came on as Mr. Chaos. Um, so now we have a team of seven on the investment side. I added this year 
Gabby Kehane, who I've known for 12 years. And Gabby and I worked together on eight of, of our portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. So I knew him socially, but also gained a lot of, a lot of respect for how world-class he is uh, through the work we did together. And then we finally also lucked out, which is my most trusted headhunter, a guy called Shane Burgess. Uh, he's a person I've done probably 17 searches with historically, CEO level, VP level. Mm-hmm. So I know him like the back of my hand. He's phenomenal. And he called me last year and he goes like, I turned 50. I'm tired of being a headhunter. I want to be more aligned with founders. And I was like, great. Come, <laughs> Come in. So now we have a great talent partner. So out of a place of relative fragility, mm-hmm. we've now switched to a place of quite good strength. Really senior people, really knowledgeable. Yeah. And I think part of the change was also in me, which is, you know, there's the kind of letting go as the founder, you know, and I put myself under a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to everything has to be world class, etc. And over time, you kind of go, no, it's okay. You know, people will come with really different styles and really different approaches, and you just got to let them mm-hmm. be who they want to be. Um, and it's also bought me a lot of space to go back to thinking and speaking on stage, which I love to do and sharing, right. sharing thoughts. And I think that's also for me, like as a balance has been quite cool because now I can focus, I do investing, which I always which adore working with founders and then finding space again for that kind of thought leadership work. Right. So over these last 22 years or so, you've been looking at founders and opportunities and you've, you've backed amazing people. What are the sort of key characteristics in, in those founders that you think are, you know, the, the, the key ones that make them really successful? Yeah, you know, I th- my first comment on that would be that people look for algorithms, people look for systems, people look for simplifications. Here's the three things you should look for in a founder. And it's more complex than that. I don't know that that works, to right. be honest, because if you look at Scott Knoll at Integral Ad Science, the four and a half billion dollar company, He's very understated. He's very quiet. He's very, I mean, you know, he's just got a style to him that wouldn't necessarily shine when you're fundraising. Right. But he's really freaking good. Um, And so I haven't, I don't know that I have an archetype that works. What is... Maybe that's not a dimension. I mean, I agree that, for example, the, the US VCs, they really almost require the founders to be a superstar on stage, right? Correct. It doesn't mean that that's the right, no. those are the right people, right? No, exactly. Right? But like, there's other characteristics maybe, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, look, there's something <clears throat> about, one of the mental tests I try and use is like, if I look back to TJ Parker at Pillpack, TJ, founder of Pillpack, goes into a room to sell the company for 600 million, comes out with a billion dollar offer. And you try and divinate or identify early on whether you're in front of the kind of people who have that type of backbone uh, that they're able to do that without being arrogant, without hubris, but just because of substance. And can you detect that in people? Mm-hmm. Now, most founders will need to grow into that. And I think sometimes you need to really give them time to go into these kinds of role. But do they have that kind of great kind of backbone, that sort of solidity to them? Mm-hmm. That means, you know, they will not... When the fear comes, when the near failure comes, when the exit comes, there's just these kind of people who can operate well under pressure mm-hmm. and keep thinking rationally. Uh, another thing, of course, is learning speed. And this is a bit of a cliche, but you know, if you have a very high 
learning metabolism. Yeah, adaptability. Uh, it's fantastic. So you can be very opinionated. You can have a very strong vision. But if you have different um, data, you need to change. But you, but you need to at the same time be able yeah. to just learn, right? So are you a learning entity? And in fact, do you build <clears throat> learning organizations? Because that's fundamentally what startups should be. Um, beyond that, I kind of, you know, investing early is an act of faith or an act of belief or an act of love. And there is something about the connection with the individual in the project where you go, I just want to be in business with you. Right. You know, but that how is, do you square that with, we can all go through, you know, the, the, the PowerPoint or whatever it is and the size of the market and how different and how great this product is much better than anything else out there. But it's really about the people, as you're saying, right? And sometimes and, and quite often in the last few years, there was a huge pressure to do the deal, to, to, to deploy, to win. Um, how do you measure people so fast, right? Is it intuition? Um, I think, so we have probably one or two mistakes in the portfolio where in retrospect, I'm like, you know, we knew it, we went in anyway. Um, but I think this is where you go to developing your own awareness. And so I go into meetings and I'm super engaged with the founder and we're having this, by the way, we go off script all the time. We get into discussion super quickly because part of what you do is you break the classic sales process into much more of a two-way engaged dialogue right. and you discover quite quickly. Um, but then it's almost like I'm watching us from a thousand miles away in the room and going, is it the kind of person I'm talking about? To what, how do they hold themselves? Are they generous with their insights and their time? Do they have authority around the things that they know? Are they learning about the things they don't know? And I kind of really test for it. So I'll engineer a little disagreement. I'll throw a little piece of insight I'm quite confident about to see how they integrate it. I'll challenge them hard on something that I know is weaker with a little bit of edge just to see how, to what extent they, they get triggered or to what extent they kind of sit with it, right? So you're kind of, basically, it's like doing super fast psychology. The other thing we've done, which is a bit unorthodox, but I go for dinner and we talk about our All childhood. Yes. We talk about our shadow side. We talk about, you know, what, what elements of our personality are more complicated. We talk about our personal journey. And it's, it's a bit odd, but, uh, you know, as long as the founder is okay with it, so you need to be very clear about what you're doing, you know, there's a lot of richness in that in terms of just creating connection. Because we're going to be working together for like seven to ten years. Right. No it's joke, kind of, right? It's a very, very quick speed dating right. and, and very fast engagement leading towards marriage, right? Yes. And, you know, I think it's interesting. So an, the analogy of, of dating and marriage works. I don't love to use it because in a way it is its own thing. Of course. And I really prefer to think always in terms of partnerships mm -hmm. and co-creation, if we can get into that zone. Um, and, you know, do, it's also the beauty of being a small fund is we don't need to do everything. So we can afford to work with people where we that feel like. that we are in the co-creation space and there is that collaboration mindset. And it's very important to say, we don't give too much advice unless we're asked. Because there's so much advice, so much of it's shit. Founders <laughs> get too much of it. So we're more around reframing, thinking differently, mm -hmm. analogs, you know. And on occasion, if a founder wants advice, I'll be like, I'll say, 
do you want some advice? And then we, I'm going to put it very clearly in the advice bucket and I'll go like, throw it in the benefits, not good. Here are my biases around it, but here's what I would do. And but to make it very clear that this is not the board telling them what to do. I'm like, you right. almost, almost need to go out of your way to not influence founder behavior too much. Because right. otherwise, very often they'll take your word and go, the board wants me to do X. Right. And, and you know, you kind of you really want to watch that sort of power dynamic, right? And the truth is that the majority of great founders do not need your advice, right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. And look, I think everybody benefits from viewpoints as long as they're informed and grounded. The problem with a lot of VCs is they feel like they have to exist. Right, right. So they come to the boardroom and they're like, yeah, let me, I'll provide an opinion because right. they want to contribute. So it comes from a good place, right. but actually it may not just be the right thing to yes. do. You sort know? of like the consulting uh, mindset, right? Right. I'm coming here and I'm going to tell you how, it, how things are. Yeah. And, you know, again, they want to be a positive influence. And right. so they provide opinions. But if you don't know about anything, just shut up like it's okay you know <laughs> like, or if you don't know about anything actually say you don't know about something and then we can move on you know but i find the the for vcs to not bring their fear or their ego um and to not pollute the environment of the founder is really important and you know i was talking to someone at web summit here who said the most scarce and precious resource we have is the energy of the founder. And I really like that. And it's like, are you depleting the founder of energy or are mm -hmm. you doing the opposite? Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean sometimes you don't mm -hmm. have a tough discussion. Of course. Because, you know, that's also... You have to also... Radical honesty is part of your job. You're not there to be liked. But you just want to be very sparse with when you do that. You know, it's a, it's a kind of silver bullet you don't want to use too often. No. And so you are basically in London and, and focusing on the London and a little bit of Paris also, from yeah. what I understand, or occasionally something else. But you come to Lisbon now and again. Why, why do you come here? Well, so I can see you. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I adore Portugal. That's an obvious answer. We have, so if 65% of our portfolio will be around London and the so-called Golden Triangle, uh, we have select opportunities outside. Now, there's got to be a good reason why they come to us. So, for example, we did Oliva Health out of Barcelona with, uh, you know, the original co-founder of Travel Perk. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we did that one is we found it. It's like very rarely for us, we were being thematic and Clio signed up. Uh, Clio signed up to try the tool. And then the founders kind of knew us because of my work on LinkedIn and Twitter. And then we jumped in there and basically hijacked their funding round in three days. But there was a very good reason why we're in, which is we approached them. Uh, we have another company in Spain called Cleverea. And so they specifically did not want a Spanish investor. So they reached out to seed funds in the UK. We were near the top of their list for whatever reason. But I mean, again, I understand why they came to us. There's a good mm -hmm. reason for that. Um, so if you go outside of your core hunting ground, you have to be very humble. Like there is no way in hell that I'm going to be closer to a seed opportunity in Portugal unless I have a pre-existing relationship with a specific individual, right? So uh, I will not be arrogant enough to think that will ever happen, that I could outcompete Indico on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and and you were, we were just now at Web Summit, right? And uh, what do you think about the Web Summit and these sort of events? So the, the fact that we are able to bring the community together 
at scale like that is wonderful because I think for me, the energy, I mean, the amount of young people, by the way, diverse people, lots of women, lots of people of color, mm-hmm. um, the kind of crazy breadth of projects, you know, underwater farming using VR, uh, AI powered, so no a lot builders. of creativity for sure. I mean, it's great. So, so there's just a, an amazing energy that I think really helps us put ourselves on the map and change our own narrative about what our market's about. Um, and so I think that's phenomenal. It is unbelievably well organized. So I've never seen such a seamless conference. I mean, credit to Patty and co. Um, and, you know, for me, I get to, I meet people here from London that I don't get to meet in London, right? So it's just a, it's just this incredibly concentrated networking opportunity. But I also feed my brain. You know, I come here to just be on the ground and talk to people and feed my brain and kind of open up. So I don't come here with specific business objectives. Right. I just like feed myself on ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I find it's it good. just very enriching. Well, it's very good to have you here. Fred, thank you so much. It's a real very pleasure. welcome always, always to Indico. And uh, I'll see you around. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you.